Welcome to the Emerging Minds podcast. You're with Sophie Guy and today I'm speaking with Jill Munro. Jill is a social worker and part of the workforce development team at the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health. Jill has several years experience working in the homelessness and alcohol and other drug sectors. Most recently, she was manager of a large specialist drug and alcohol service, where she took a particular interest in the roles that stigma and trauma play in the recovery of people with substance use issues. Jill has a strong sense of social justice and enjoys working alongside practitioners, clients and families to develop places, activities and communities where people can start to feel safe and a sense of belonging to a positive community of like-minded people. In today's episode, we discuss child-focused and parent-sensitive practice in the alcohol and other drug sector, in particular, drawing on Jill's recent conversations with leading practitioners in the field as part of the Emerging Minds suite of resources for working with parents who use substances. Thank you very much, Jill, for joining me today for a podcast episode. It's a pleasure. Welcome. I think, first of all, it would be really great to hear a bit about your experience working in the alcohol and other drugs and homelessness sectors. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I worked for many years as manager of a um, specialist drug and alcohol treatment service and we provided um, treatment across a continuum of care. So there'd be drop-in sessions, there'd be counselling and groups and intensive day programs and then a residential rehab component where people would spend time in the wider community, share, like share housing in the wider community but with a full therapeutic Uh, program wrapped around them kind of thing and uh, before that I worked in the homelessness sector for a while as well and then kind of the two things in tandem uh, we had some sort of double funding if you like and I think um, that experience was quite pivotal for me just um, in really uh, there's something about working with people who are significantly disadvantaged that I just really started to develop a passion for. So I guess, you know, most of the people that would come for drug and alcohol treatment as well, they're at that real pointy end of substance use. Mm -hmm. And so many of them is the same sort of client group. There'd be quite a lot of overlap between homelessness and drug and alcohol service attendance. And so similar sort of factors that people were facing, um, intergenerational stuff often, poverty, disadvantage, mental health issues, Mm-hmm. Um, just that total social exclusion, really, particularly with the homelessness, people attending homelessness services. Okay. But also intergenerational trauma, you really notice that as well. And, mm-hmm. you know, I suppose it became important to me to try and understand that more. And when you say that you felt it was important to understand that, how did you explore intergenerational trauma within your work? It was hard often to go into that in huge depth. But just the beginnings of understanding, I think all practitioners can do, and it's important to have that understanding to actually support people to engage with services. I mean, it's where the stigma sort of comes from, I guess. If you have no understanding that this person has a trauma background and that it's probably an intergenerational trauma background, then you're just looking at behaviours. If you're not looking at something through a trauma lens, you're just sort of working with those presenting behaviours, which can be quite difficult. It puts a whole new understanding on it if you're looking at this as intergenerational trauma. How do we provide safety, welcoming, um, compassion for this person, basically, Mm. in order to stop the cycle, really? 
Mm -hmm. So it might not be that the service does all of that trauma work, but at least they can do that initial understanding, safety, compassion, empathy, that allows the person to attend that service. And it might be that you refer to somewhere else for some deep trauma work. Mm -hmm. But I think that just having that ability to really accept the person at that level goes a really long way towards starting a, a journey of recovery. Okay. And to what extent was understanding of trauma or trauma-informed care embedded in the services that you worked in? Um, increasingly so. I think it was kind of always there. There was mm -hmm. an understanding of it, but over the years the understanding developed. It was embedded sort of through the organisation, this idea that we needed to have a trauma lens. But it didn't always peter right down to the front line. And I think for me it was noticing that particularly with women, so women seem to be affected by trauma in ways that is even more debilitating perhaps. I don't know if I can say that, but I've just said it. So perhaps more debilitating mm. than it can be for men. So there's an additional layer of marginalisation for women. Um, and also there may be sexual trauma and domestic violence and so on that actually layers additional trauma onto them. And is that what you mean when you say it can be more debilitating for women, those um, layers of domestic violence? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I think it's uh, research really shows that women who have gone through childhood trauma, they actually will attract more of that, unfortunately, in their lives, dangerous relationships and so on. So without an understanding, and again, of, without having that trauma lens of being able to look with compassion at this woman, you can actually get some quite judgmental opinions, even amongst practitioners. And that was always interesting to me. Mm -hmm. How do we actually work with that to raise awareness amongst practitioners as well that this is a trauma presentation, really? What you're working with initially is trauma behaviours. Mm -hmm. And... You know, it, it takes a while to build trust, to build safety, to actually mm. get beyond that. Mm. Could you talk a little bit, sort of maybe give a bit of an example, or what did trauma-informed uh, work look like when mm -hmm. you are meeting with clients? Yeah, sure. So I'll talk mainly about women, um, because I guess that's particularly my area of interest, but also because, as I've said, it seems it has a more debilitating effect on women. Mm -hmm. It might be that you need to take more time. You usually do. So you may not do this work in your initial half hour, hour session. You might need to just stretch it out a little bit. You might need to just delay the full assessment and do that over a couple of sessions rather than one session mm -hmm. while you actually seriously connect with the person. There's some real empathy and connection going on. Mm -hmm. You're listening for other things in that woman's life. So she may be attending for drug and alcohol treatment, but she's not going to actually engage with drug and alcohol treatment if she's got no clothes, if she's couch surfing, if she's got nowhere stable to live, if, she, if she's in an abusive relationship. So there might be that there's some physical needs that actually be, need to be met first. You can't just go straight into an assessment and counselling you know, there might be mm -hmm. food is required or those basic human physical needs mm -hmm. to start to help her to feel safe and actually have the basic needs that she requires, you know, to have that place of safety to start any therapeutic work. Mm -hmm. So today we're going to talk a bit about child-focused practice. Could you describe 
what is meant by child-focused practice in the AOD and homelessness sector? I think it started off with that phrase of making the child visible in the services and that really became a well-known phrase. We kind of all knew we had to make the child visible somehow. Mm -hmm. How that actually happened was I think quite variable across services and uh, the sectors and the services. So I guess I will speak from my own experience managing the drug and alcohol service in particular. Mm -hmm. We realised, I guess, that we had to do this through every level of the service. You could talk about this as being an important thing in our practice meetings. We need to speak to people, uh, parents about their children and so on. But unless that was supported by some kind of paperwork and processes, again, it's hard to change practice without that. So we started to think, how can we embed this all the way through? And we had our lovely admin reception guy ask everybody that called in, you know, just a couple of questions. And one of them was, are you pregnant mm -hmm. to women? And uh, do you have children under five or do you have children five to 12? So that even informed the very beginning of that person's journey. They, parent, being asked about their children was normalised. Mm -hmm. We then put it on to assessment processes there would be a fast tracking. So if his initial question, are you pregnant, was a yes, then there would be a fast tracking of a pregnant woman into treatment. Somebody would call her immediately uh -huh. to get an appointment as soon as possible and there'd be assertive follow-up. So we started to gradually embed it right the way through the service in that way. So, you know, it was on the assessment, as I say, we'd ask about children, their ages, their full names, mm -hmm. which were often different, um, not necessarily the same as the mothers, mm -hmm. where they lived, custody details and so on. And just a simple question around how are the kids going? And uh -huh. so at assessment, the parents started to get used to, this is just something we do. Children, you know, in your family life will just be asked about in a fairly low-key way uh -huh. from the very beginning. Um, and we built it into care plans as well. So each client would develop their own rehab plan covering various domains of their life mm -hmm. and parenting would be part of that. How did parenting come into the care plans? How did that influence, you know, the way that our clients thought about their, their yeah. recovery? So initially it was on the care plans of parents who were coming into the service for residential rehab. We had a, a stream of funding where we could take in single parents and their children or women going through the reunification program, or men in fact. And so initially it was just around those families, which was only a couple of families. But that helped us develop some expertise, I guess. So we actually had the women and children on site or we were working with child protection to actually support reunification. And so there'd be an addition to the care plan around um, some reflective questions for the parent at the end of every week. And this usually actually revolved around what was required from child protection. And it was things like insight into parenting and how have you noticed substance use or mood affects parenting uh, you know and uh, what sort of skills have you what have you learned this week to support your child emotionally or what sort of behaviors are difficult so there were some specific sort of questions that the parent would reflect on at the end of every week and then we would encourage they would speak with their counselor and then they would uh, be encouraged to call child protection themselves and talk through the things that they'd learned the reflections the insights they'd developed and so on Okay. So when we saw that gradually starting to work well, 
then it started to be rolled out more widely with other parents in the service. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a really busy service and there would have been well over a thousand people attending every year. So to actually do that, it, it became a staged process and something that we built a bit of expertise with the people in residential and then gradually, where the need was most obvious, started to roll that out. Okay, and so was sort of parenting and the impacts of bringing the child into focus for parents and perhaps the impacts of um, you know their drug use on children was that something that was being explored or was there sort of particular programs that people in the service would be part of as well? Yeah um, there were other programs that parents would be linked in with so we would provide a women's group Mm -hmm. We'd also provide, one of our counsellors was actually trained in the circle of security mm -hmm. and so there'd be that course kind of ongoing for parents that were part of the service. And then usually if they're part of the re reunification process then they would be working with a re reunification worker, child protection worker and psychologist and so on to actually support their parenting as well. Okay. So yeah. it was kind of a wraparound approach I guess. Okay. Yeah, I guess I'm just curious. So the adults that come into your service who um, who are parents, you know, what sort of awareness do they have around the impacts of their um, alcohol and drug use, addiction on parenting and on their children? Yeah, I think various levels of awareness. I think some were all too aware mm. of the way that substance use impacts their children. You know, and I mean, that just is, when you've got that level of shame and guilt, it's very hard to actually work from any kind of empowered place to actually support improved parenting. So there were definitely many parents who felt significant shame and guilt around the effects of their drug use. So you're saying that those people who were more aware and held a lot of shame, that it was harder for them to... Well, to it work was, on their parenting? Yeah, uh, well, I think it was hard. It really yeah. needed the, a strengths approach, I think, yeah. to actually point out things that were going well, mm -hmm. times when they, you know, really did seem to understand what was going on with their child, they responded well to their child. But it's about moving past that shame and guilt. Of course, it needs to be acknowledged, but you have to mm. sort of move past that and start to build a bit of self-efficacy, a bit of self-confidence as a parent mm -hmm. um, and some supports really around that. I mean, I guess there's other parents who would be in a form of denial maybe that uh -huh. um, no, it's not affecting, they don't see it, we I'd only ever use when they're asleep or drink when they're asleep or they're not home or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes that's denial and sometimes that is possibly that they really don't think that their substance use is affecting children because children don't see it necessarily. Okay. And it, I mean, it must be really hard for parents to really come to terms with that. Yeah, I think it's it's extremely hard, mm. um, you know, because you've got so much stigma that you're facing anyway as mm. a person with substance use. If you're a parent with substance use issues, then there's an even deeper levels of stigma attached to that. And possibly even more again, if you're a mother with substance use and um, children parenting and um, if you're pregnant that's the possibly the highest level of stigma at all mm. and I think that that's really hard for anybody to understand I mean I, and for practitioners to understand 
We've got this kind of um, discourse of the good mother and that mothering is something innate and natural and that you have a child and you just naturally drop all your bad habits and you're a mum. <laughs> but I think we all know that that's not quite as easy as we think it is. It's not necessarily a natural thing, becoming a mother uh, or being a you know a parent. There are skills that can be learnt and so on. Mm. And it's not that easy to drop all of your bad habits um, when you become a parent, but mm. particularly when you're somebody that has a background of complex trauma, intergenerational disadvantage, uh, all those things that you're struggling with as well. And substance use has been your only coping mechanism to actually feel in any way normal or to hide all these levels of pain that you're experiencing. It's not realistic to expect um, people to just suddenly stop when they become pregnant or have a child. They may want to and have the very best intentions in the world of wanting to do that, but mm -hmm. the actual doing of it is something much more difficult because of course when they stop using, all of those horrible traumatic feelings will come back with a vengeance and so you've possibly got hormonal changes if you're pregnant and mm. you know flashbacks of trauma it's, it's a lot to cope with really yeah. and I think having those kinds of understandings makes it a lot easier for practitioners as well to perhaps be more compassionate in their work with women. Mm. To what extent do you think that um, child-focused practice has become more common in, in services that mainly work with adults? I think there's definitely a willingness to adopt child-focused practices. And I think it is being adopted gradually and slowly. I'm talking about evolution, I guess, again. Mm -hmm. um, there's been some really good studies and research and supporting materials, I guess, for the drug and alcohol and homelessness sectors. Sometimes those don't perhaps filter down again to the front line in these busy services. And I guess that's what I found interesting about developing these resources with emerging minds, that we've got that ability to develop some really practical tools that can be used on the front line to support child-focused practice because people don't always know how to actually do it in practice. You know, they'll, they'll have this as a concept of we need to make the child visible, but it comes with a lot of fear as well around um, making child protection reports and so on. And I don't know that practitioners always think about the positive side of it, where there's a lot of work that they can do in these adult um, services to support parents in their parenting alongside working with substance use or whatever. Mm. Could you talk a bit about the resources that you've been developing? Yeah, sure. That's been really exciting, actually, because it's lovely coming from a sector where you notice there's possibly a little bit of a gap mm -hmm. and then being able to come and um, work on that gap, basically, mm -hmm. and harness all that wisdom that there is across the drug and alcohol sector in Australia. So there is some fantastic practice going on and it was great to be able to speak to some of those practitioners to actually inform these resources. So we've, we're developing a, a drug and alcohol e-learning course mm -hmm. which will support child aware and parent sensitive practice in the drug and alcohol sector but also across um, generalist sectors as well. So mm -hmm. basically just supporting parents with substance use issues and it's all around building children's resilience and improved social and emotional well-being. 
And off of that e-learning course, there are some other additional resources, and in particular a conversation guide to actually support frontline workers to have conversations with parents across five domains in a child's life to actually, again, support children's social and emotional well-being. Okay, and what are those domains? So it's called the PERCS Conversation Guide, mm -hmm. and the P is the Parent-Child Relationship. Mm -hmm. E is emotions and behaviour, so understanding the child's emotions and responding to the behaviours. R is routines. I love routines. <laughs> I think it's a really easy place to start in many ways, to uh -huh. actually look at what are the routines in the family. Are there any regular routines? What can we put in mm -hmm. as routines? Because those are the things that actually give children safety, a sense of stability. Mm. Are there routines outside of the home? Um, but that's quite an easy little place to start, I always think, on routines in the family. Yeah, not too threatening either. No, it's not. You know, you can brush your teeth at the same time. You can have a story before bed or, mm. you know, every family will be different in what they want to do. But uh, mm -hmm. there will be something there that will be fairly easy and achievable for a parent to adopt and for a practitioner to kind of explore with a parent. Mm -hmm. Communication is the C. Um, and that's just supporting parents in their communication with children. And I think importantly highlighting where they do do these things as well. So there may be mm -hmm. times when they have great communication. How do we build on that? And the S is support networks. But I think it's a really practical kind of resource that just gives some example questions to guide practitioners in this kind of work. Because I think it does seem a bit foreign initially you know, although there's a willingness, I think, in the sectors, I think, to, how do we actually do it? To do the child-focused yeah, yeah, and parent-sensitive, yeah. yeah, what does that actually look like? Exactly. Yeah. And I hadn't heard the term parent-sensitive before I came to Emerging Minds, and I love that term. So it's just about being sensitive to the fact that the person in front of you might be a parent. And of course, that's a really important role in anybody's life, even if the children aren't with them. Um, and they're in, uh, you know, child protection or something like that, they still often have contact and they like talking about their children. People generally like talking about their children and children are such a motivator for them to make changes. I think that parent-sensitive approach is lovely and can be really supportive in lots of work with people. Mm, okay. And you mentioned you had the opportunity to meet with and talk to other practitioners in the space. What did you learn from that? What are the, sort of the main things you took away from? I mean, I think it was things around this understanding of trauma again. So it's things like, you know, that a parent with a trauma background will struggle with managing their own emotions and then they have a child with big, strong emotions as well. Mm. All that does really is just trigger their own sense of helplessness and it's this awful then kind of catch-22. They can't manage their own emotions due to a background of trauma mm -hmm. and yet they're then expected to try and manage their children's emotions. So there needs to be some work done on managing emotional regulation for people with background trauma before they can really support their children effectively. And we also um, interview people from who work directly with children, the children of people with substance use issues. And that was fascinating too, just to right. really get you know, the feedback around children's experience. 
Yeah. The things that parents would always, uh, children rather, would always say in the groups or the individual therapies that were being provided, that they had these three kind of rules to keep it hidden, don't trust anybody and don't speak about this. And that was really quite generic, apparently, with children of parents with substance use issues. That there'd often be a parent without a substance use issue who would come and bring the children to something, or, you know, yeah. to seek support. And that was often the first time that those children kind of had permission to actually speak right. about the problems in the family. And so. what kind of impact do you think, or did they say, that could have on a child to keep it secret? So it was things like, um, you know, the child really often takes the responsibility for the problems in the family. They think that it's something that they've done, that they're not good enough, that they aren't... And I guess it's because there's some fairly harsh parenting practices that can come out of, you know, when you're struggling with a substance use yourself and all the different moods around that and you're struggling with intergenerational trauma and poor parenting practices, there's some pretty harsh parenting that can go on as a result mm -hmm. and so that sort of can compound children's messages of feeling defective, worthless, to blame and so on. Mm. And I think although we kind of know that intellectually, I think most practitioners would kind of know that, it was actually really interesting for me to hear that from somebody that works direct with children to actually hear those children's voices. It just made mm. it more real for me to actually speak to her about that experience. Right. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about what more needs to happen at a, say, a policy level around ensuring that practitioners are working in a child-focused way? Yes, I guess I do. So I think certainly for the drug and alcohol sector, I think it would be useful if statistics were collected around how many parents attend services seeking substance um, support for substance use and at the moment that's not collected so a lot of stats are but pregnant women that's not collected and neither is parenting status and so when you're trying to look at um, statistics around how many parents in Australia have substance use issues you're really relying on a self-reporting uh, report for that there's mm -hmm. nothing really collected that um, would inform how many parents are actually struggling with substance use issues. So I think that in itself would start to inform policy and service agreements and so on. So at the moment, service agreements tend to, they note child-focused practice as being, this is one of the things that we want you to do, adopt a child-focused practice, but there's not really much measurement of that really, it's qualitative kind of measurement. I think there's something about um, collecting quantitative stats around an issue that starts to change policy really. If we really knew how many parents were um, having problems with substance use issues, then it would start to inform the service agreements, policy, strategic health plans and so on. Mm -hmm. So I think that you know it has appeared in uh, strategic plans for uh, the drug and alcohol sector in the different states and territories and so on. But a bit more probably needs to be done there to really embed it because that would then cause services to have to work more to a child aware mm. uh, approach. Mm. So, 
And at the moment, they're just so busy. So, you know, I think there's, there is a willingness there without doubt. You can see the willingness, but I think that these okay. services are just so busy mm. uh, that this seems a little bit perhaps like an add-on sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In your interviews and conversations with practitioners for developing these resources, were there some examples of promising practice that support children and parents' social and emotional well-being that stood out to you? Um, yes, there were. So there were definitely examples where uh, practitioners really got the importance of all services asking about children. So not just drug and alcohol homelessness services, but all adult services. Um, there was some quite enthusiastic response around that from senior managers. Mm-hmm. And so that's really encouraging because that's your authorising environment, I guess, you know, in individual organisations, that this is seen as something useful and really worthwhile across all sorts of different services, whether that's financial counselling, um, you know, emergency relief type services, whatever. So that was good. And then I guess it's visiting those women's services where you feel as though there's such a wealth of knowledge there that it would be lovely to share more widely um, across mainstream services and just the way that they work, basically. So that real strong understanding of trauma and stigma and how to work with that. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, they have the um, dialectical behaviour therapy there, which is not commonly used across the drug and alcohol sector, but is really useful for working with women with trauma. Right, okay. And things like, so they were doing things like videoing parenting. So, you know, just having parent and child 20 minute videos and then really pointing out the strengths in those videos, Mm -hmm. which starts to build self-efficacy again in the parent which I thought was quite lovely, really. And also, I guess, that giving people permission to feel bad about parenting. So I think, again, going back to that discourse of the good mother and the fact that, you know, you've now got this baby which you just automatically love and are really Mm. caring and nurturing of. And that's not always the case for all women, or many women, um, Mm. but in the drug and alcohol Um, services I guess it was just about giving them the space to actually explore I've got this baby now in my care am I in a fit place am I well enough to look after this baby do I want to did I want to have this baby and having a bit of space around that which would sometimes lead to women realizing actually no I'm not in the right space for this at the moment I really need to focus on my own well-being and um, healing, Mm. if you like. And so just not assuming that now that this person's reunified with their child, that's all going to be fine and we'll work from this. You know, sometimes that's not what the woman wants or is ready for and so on. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was quite an important thing to keep in mind as well, just giving that space and being able to contain those conversations, I think, is really useful. Yeah, that sounds very powerful. Mm. And just building that relationship between mother and child protection. I think that's a key sort of takeaway as well, that it's women are often so angry, and I'm focusing on women, men as well. We have many men come through the service that really wanted 
uh, their children back in their care and they had such a distrust and an anger of course mm -hmm. with grief underneath it you know that their children had been taken into care but you can't sit in that space for too long and as a practitioner it's easy to do that to kind of feel like you're on side uh, sitting in that space with a parent but it's not productive it needs to kind of then be shifted on to well let, let's how do we build this relationship with child protection mm -hmm. so that you can start to get more access you know usually things are never a done deal you can always do some more recovery work yourself build some more insight as a parent and there's always a bit of hope that you will start to get more access you may even get reunification Thank you for sharing so generously about your experience, yeah, both pleasure. in your managerial service role, but also in the work that you've been doing at Emerging Minds. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Pleasure. Visit our website at www.emergingminds.com.au to access a range of resources to assist your practice. Brought to you by the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health, led by Emerging Minds, and delivered in partnership with the Australian Institute of Family Studies, the Australian National University, the Parenting Research Centre, and the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners. The National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health under the National Support for Child and Youth Mental Health Programme.